0: Good morning, Veritas. How we doing? Doing well. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan. I'm on staff here as a college ministry pastor, and uh, much more than what I do for work, I'm also a dad, so this day, yeah, thank you. Here we go. This day is kind of about me. No, not really. Uh, This is the Lord's Day. We're going to keep it that way, but uh, here's what's true. I have a three-year-old named Blaze, two-year-old named Leo, and a four-month-old named Silas. All boys If you think about us, pray for us, all right? We need it. Uh, Our oldest two have been sticking with a a catchphrase lately. It's best friend. Uh, So it's really actually pretty endearing if they come home from school and they're like, Dad, you're my best friend. And I'm like, thanks, Blaze. It means a ton. But then later they're playing. And you know who else is his best friend? This is Owlette. Uh, This is one of Blaze's toys, which is clearly plastic and not alive. So, uh, best friend doesn't really mean a lot when he says it to Owlette. But let's be real, this is not just a three-year-old thing, is it? Like, overusing words so much that they lose their meaning? You get the idea, right? Love. How confusing would it be to my children if they frequently heard me say to them, I love you. Or to my wife, I love you. And then, just in a quick turn, say, I love pizza. And I do, right? I love pizza, or I love playing outside. They're like, wait, so I must be the same as pizza, right? Like, what's the difference? Or how about this word? Awesome. I'm going to give you a definition for awesome. Causing or inducing awe. Inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence admiration, or fear. What comes to mind when you hear that definition? Hopefully God, right? Like, we serve an awesome God. He induces awe. He allows us to feel reverence and admiration and fear. But yet we use the same word to talk about sports games, movies, vacations. Like, really? Is that the same as God? Are we overusing awesome? Has it just lost its meaning? How about this word? Christian. Recent polls and surveys indicate that 64% of Americans call themselves Christian today. But what does that even mean? (laughs) Like, what does the word Christian mean? Is it our family heritage? Is it something we inherit? Is it a political alignment? Is it a matter of morality? Like, oh, I'm Christian, meaning... I think I'm better than you morally. Is a Christian just somebody that believes Jesus is a real person? Is a Christian somebody that comes to church on Sunday like congratulations you made it in the room you're a Christian? Or is it something more than that? I mean, clearly there's a lot of confusion about what the what the term Christian means. When it when it was Antioch Acts 11 the term Christian was very clear it meant Little Christ, or affiliated with Christ, but what does it mean in America in 2023? It's confusing. Statistics show that 56% of self-reported evangelical Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 43% believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. 47% of practicing Christian millennials, that's my age group so I can rip on them, churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives believe that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs in hopes that others will share the same faith with them. Whoa! That doesn't sound very Christian to me when I start to look at the Bible. And so, as we dig into our our Life of Christ series, today we're looking at the disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, and we need to walk away with an answer to this question. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian, not just culturally, but biblically, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, so if you have a physical Bible, would love for you to bring it out. We're also going to flip over to Luke 5 a couple times to look at a companion passage from the Gospel of Luke, but Matthew 4, we're in week 4 of our Life of Christ series. We've covered the birth of Jesus, the miraculous coming of our King in the form of a baby. <laughs> we looked at his baptism by John the Baptist, really weird dude, right? But Jesus is like, I'm associating with his message. And then we look at the temptation of Jesus, that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, overcoming temptation by speaking, it is written. And before we get to today's text, we see that Jesus is actually now starting his ministry. He's left Nazareth. He begins to preach. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we get to Matthew 4, verse 18. The word of God says this, While walking by the sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Just a few short verses, but so much we can learn about what it means to be a Christian from this story. I want to give us three marks of a Christian looking at Matthew 4. The first is this A Christian is somebody that is called by Christ. A Christian is somebody that's called by Christ. Did you happen to see how these men became a Christian? Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they caught a ton of fish, they took it into the market, and Jesus is like, wow, you're really impressive. You're really good at fishing. Maybe you'd be really good at this too. No. What does Jesus do? He walks by a sea. He sees them and he speaks to them. Jesus moves towards these men. And as if it's not enough for Jesus to simply speak to us, like the God of the universe wants to speak to us? Okay, I'm listening. He does not just speak to them. He actually reveals himself as Lord. We see that as we look at the account in Luke 5. Luke 5 says this, When he... but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus comes to these men who have spent all night trying to catch a single fish, and they couldn't, and he speaks and fills their boats to the point that they're sinking. And Peter's only response is to see his sin and to call Jesus Lord. I am a sinful man. You are Lord. Lord. This is amazing news, Veritas, okay? The Christian faith is not primarily about you coming to God, but God coming to you in the person of Christ. And if you call yourself a Christian in the room today, here's what's true. Your salvation story does not start with you giving your life to Christ, but rather Christ giving his life for you and him giving you life. Him not only giving his life for you, but him literally giving you life The book of Ephesians says it this way. Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were not born a Christian. Christianity is not a default that we are born into. Here's the default you're born into. Being dead in your trespasses and sins. But here's what's true. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not with the great love with which you loved him, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the good news of the gospel, that God has come to you and has made you alive. And in fact, in the chapter right before this, here's what the word of God says, takes it almost a step Like, have you stopped for a moment and said, the God of the universe, like, who spoke galaxies into existence, the perfect, holy, spotless, blameless God, is now looking at you and me and is saying, I chose you. It's like, what? You chose me? Like, you chose us? Why? Is it because we're, like, the most impressive people on the planet? I mean, come on, we live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Let's get real. (laughs) Like, it's not because we're most impressive. Is it because we're the most moral? Absolutely not. I know most of you probably cursed under your breath just trying to get out the door this morning or get into this building. (laughs) Right? little road rage. Is it because we're the most intelligent or the most wealthy? I mean, I don't know if I've met a single person in a church that's gone to an Ivy League school. And if we're real, like, most of us probably couldn't afford a studio apartment in downtown New York. And I don't know why you'd want to live there anyways. But here's what's true. It's not because you're impressive, intelligent. It's not because you have a lot of money. No. Look who Jesus comes to. Matthew 4, Luke 5, who does he come to? Fishermen. A bunch of really ordinary dudes. And maybe, just maybe... Jesus came to them after a night of failure on purpose. Maybe he came to them after they'd spent all night and caught nothing so that they would have enough awareness to say, I can't boast in myself. Man, if you feel like you deserve to be called by Jesus, the reality is you're missing it. You don't deserve to be called by Jesus. But I think much more true in this room is people that have walked through these doors and said, I don't deserve to be called by Jesus. Like when I think about what it would mean to be called by the God of the universe, I do not meet qualifications. And I just want to say, you are exactly who God would call. 1 Corinthians says it this way. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I've never been so encouraged by a tell-off in my life, right? It's like, hey, you're a Christian. Guess what? You've been chosen. And guess what that means? That means you are foolish, weak, low, and despised, but you are exactly who God wants. Whoa, that gripped me. I'm like, Christianity must be the one thing that I can do, right? 1 Corinthians 1, This is very evident, okay? Christianity is a come-as-you-are faith. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you are not too far gone because the God of the universe has crossed from heaven to earth to pursue you. But, hear me when I say, Christianity, though it is a come-as-you-are faith, is not a stay-as-you-are faith. It is not a stay-as-you-are faith, which is the second thing we need to see. A mark of a Christian is, a Christian is somebody that follows Christ, Somebody that genuinely follows Christ. And that word follow is a bit confusing anymore, isn't it? Talk about another word that's overused and has lost its meaning in the social media era. We follow a lot of people and a lot of pages. And all it really means is that we see them post random stuff on our online feeds. Things like Christian memes or Chick-fil-A pizza recipes. Maybe that's just me. Uh... We see this stuff on our online feeds from time to time, but let's be real. They don't actually impact our life, do they? It's just another part of our ordinary life. Something we look at and scroll past. And I have to tell you, following Jesus does not work that way. Following Jesus, he will not accept just being a tag-on to the rest of your ordinary life. The word follow in Matthew 4 actually implies follow-behind. Because disciples in this day, as they would follow a rabbi, here's what they would do. They would walk behind their master. First and foremost, as a sign of reverence. But also so that they could see what he was doing and imitate him. Following Jesus looks like seeing what he does and imitating him. And here's what happens. After Jesus gives this invite, he says, hey, come follow me. The next next words he says are a promise. He says, And I will make you. I will make you. He is saying, if you are my follower, Christian, I promise that you will be changed. You will be transformed. Those who are called by Jesus are changed by Jesus. It's a reality. It's a promise. And over 550 years before Jesus was born, God spoke through a man by the name of Ezekiel. He's talking to a rebellious group of Israelites, wandering. They're in captivity. They're full of sin and lacking hope. And Ezekiel speaks. He's a mouthpiece for God, and he points forward to a new covenant. Here's what he says. The Lord, through Ezekiel, chapter 36, says, I will take you from the nations. And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all of your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is good news. (laughs) That God himself promises to come and not just give you a new heart, though you need that too. I do too. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to change your desires. But here's what else he does. He says, I am going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What? That God doesn't just change our desires to obey him, but he actually gives us the power to obey him. That's why Jesus could tell his disciples when he was about to die and resurrect that he says, it's better that I would leave that the helper would come that God would send his spirit to do the work in us, to change us and transform us. But here's what's also true. It's not easy. If you've followed Jesus for any amount of time, you know that following him and being changed by him is not all rainbows and butterflies, is it? It's hard. It requires sacrifice. Like, look what it costs these men. They get this invite and they, they get this promise, but then what do they do? Immediately... I mean, Peter and Andrew leave their job. James and John take it one further. They not only leave their job, they leave their family. It says they left their dad. And they did it immediately. Following Jesus requires forsaking. As part of following Jesus, just four chapters later in Luke 9, Jesus says this. He said to all, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's what it's going to cost you, Veritas. To follow Jesus. To pick up your cross daily. And he's not talking about a cute necklace off your nightstand. He's talking about an instrument of death. Talking about being despised. Talking about suffering and shame. Pick it up. That's the invite, die to yourself, die to your comfort, die to your control, die to your desires and your dreams to follow Jesus. Sounds fun, doesn't it? No! In some ways it sounds awful, like, really? Let go of control, let go of comfort, die to my desires and dreams? Why would I do that? I mean, use the word sacrifice on purpose, what if I told you this is a good definition of sacrifice? A surrender of something of value as a means of gaining something more desirable. That makes a little more sense now, doesn't it? That makes a little more sense why the disciples would immediately leave the things that they love to follow someone they love more. To immediately leave their job and their family for the sake of something greater. I mean what better example do we have than the person and work of Jesus? Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Whoa! You're telling me that Jesus knew that he was going to be mocked, stripped, beaten, and killed? That he was going to take the wrath of God on his head that you and me deserve? And how did he do it? Joyfully? Are you serious? How could he do that joyfully? Joyfully? Because he knew it was for something greater. He understood what sacrifice was to give up something good for the sake of something greater. And he says, yes, absolutely. Jesus knew that not only would he be raised in glory, but that he would bring us with him. And that's why he said, yes, his eyes were fixed on the cross. And now he's inviting us to do the same. He's like, here's what, here's what you got to do. Die yourself. Deny yourself. All of life. All for Jesus. Lay it down. And I'm going to offer you something better. I'm going to save your soul. I'm going to change you by the power of the Spirit. And here's what else is true. I'm going to use you to change other people. That's the third mark of the Christian. As you look at this text. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. A Christian is somebody that lives to advance Christ's kingdom. Jesus calls these men from an ordinary boat on an ordinary sea doing an ordinary task and he says, "Why don't you do something supernatural?" right Like, what if I told you you didn't just have to catch fish, catch fish for like 10, 12 hours a day, but instead you could start to share the gospel and shape people's eternities. What do you think about that? <laughs> Sign me up, best promotion ever. <laughs> right you just got promoted to the purpose you've been longing for to make a real difference in the world something more than a paycheck or a pat on the back an invite to not just go to work for income an invite not to just parent your children to make them kind an invite to not just go to school to get a degree or to play sports to win a game but that God actually wants to use you to advance his kingdom to push back the gates of hell to walk people that are spiritually dead, come alive. God didn't just call you and choose you, but he's like, hey, guess what? I want to use you. Seriously? How could we say no to that? The reality is, if we have met the real Jesus, we can't. Look all throughout the Bible and find examples of people who have encountered the real living God and see what their next step is. I mean, Peter here, clearly... I am a sinner, you are Lord, and immediately leaves everything. Reminds me a lot of Isaiah chapter 6. You know, a prophet who has unclean lips, met by the Lord, and then God is instantly like, all right, I need someone to go. And he's like, here am I, send me. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, Jordan, you're talking about like apostles and prophets. Of course they went. What about the woman at the well? John 4. A lot like you and me. She encounters Jesus. What does she do? Instantly goes and tells people, come meet the man who's told me everything about myself. What about the demon-possessed man in Mark 5? Encounters Jesus. Jesus hops on a boat. He's like, please take me with you. And Jesus says, no, go home and tell everyone back home about what the Lord has done for you. This is a natural response to encountering God. It's to be used by him, to be sent by him, to be his mouthpiece. And maybe you've heard us say this before, but you share about what you're satisfied in. This comes naturally to us. It's not hard to get around me for more than 10 minutes and hear me talk about sports, because I love sports. I'll talk College World Series. I'll talk Stanley Cup. Because guess what? I love sports. The question is, if people bump into me, will they hear about Jesus? And if not, the question is, am I satisfied in him? Maybe not. Maybe not as I ought to be because sharing about Jesus comes from being satisfied in Jesus. And as we look at Matthew 4, I just love the fishing analogy. (laughs) Maybe Jesus knew what he was doing, you know, using this illustration on purpose. I think he did. I I was with my boys and my nieces yesterday and we were fishing and I realized how miserable of a hobby it can be for people that want instant (laughs) gratification. (laughs) Think about it. You know, we cast a hook out and my niece waits maybe 30 seconds. She's like, it's getting pretty close to shore, isn't it? I'm like, No, it's not. We gotta sit. We gotta wait. It's a miserable hobby for people that want control. You can't control it. Evangelism is a lot like fishing. It requires a few steps. Number one, we have to go. Gotta get near the water. Right? If you want to be a laborer in the harvest field or a fisher for men, you've got to go into the harvest or you've got to get near a body of water. You've got to get around some fish. It means you've got to go. And here's your next step. You've got to cast. And these men were net fishing. We're not getting into the meticulous, like, what bait did you use or what lure did you attach? No, they cast a net. And here's what casting is for us. Sharing the gospel speaking the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done you go you cast and then what do you do? you wait maybe you could say you trust because here's what's true if you didn't have the power to save yourself and bring yourself to God you certainly don't have the power to save somebody else and bring them to God who does? God God The same spirit that changed you and gave you life is actually who needs to do the work in the other people. So you go to them, you cast, you share the good news of the gospel, and you trust. Jesus is the one that has to do the work by the power of his spirit in them. You cannot change a human heart, but you can share the gospel. So, if we want to know what a disciple is, looking at Matthew 4, Luke 5... Here's what it is. Here's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody that's called by Christ, follows Christ, and lives to advance His kingdom. That's what a Christian is. And maybe you look at that statement and you're like, wow, I don't think I'm doing so hot. <laughs> I don't know if I've been transformed by Jesus. I don't know if I've forsaken anything to follow Jesus. I don't remember the last time I shared Jesus. I'm like, hey, guess what comes first? Being called. <laughs> So if you feel conviction, you feel like you've fallen short, here's the good news. You are qualified to be called. The first thing that has to happen is that God has to reveal himself to you as Lord, which means you have to see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. Are you called? Are you going to trust? Are you going to say, I am a sinner. You are Lord. Receive the call. That's your first step. And maybe you've already done that, but Today is a great reminder for you to say, hey, following Jesus is not about me coming to him, but about him coming to me. That's good news. But it comes with a challenge, right? How are you going to follow Jesus this week? What command is he specifically challenging you to obey? What's something in your life that you've been tight-fisted with that you're like, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, just stay away from this? Let go. Give up control. Forsake all for the sake of following Jesus. And lastly, advance his kingdom. Whether you've recognized this or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a sent one. If you've been saved by Jesus and satisfied in Jesus, your natural response is to go and share. And yes, we want to be a church that sends to the nations. We want people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to hear the name of Jesus. And yes, we want to be a church that plants churches. We want to be people that say, God, I will leave the comfort of home. I will leave the comfort of family if that means starting a new church in a new city where people are going to hear the gospel. And we should assume, (laughs) Veritas, we should assume that that's for us. Because that's that's a theme all throughout scripture. That people give stuff up and go to new places for the sake of advancing the gospel. But here's what I know to be true. There's no such thing as transformation by transportation. It means if you're not sharing the gospel right now, you're not going to start if you move somewhere different. So should we pray? Should we say, God, here am I, send me. Am I supposed to go to Bangkok? Am I supposed to go across the country? That's a good prayer. But maybe this week we need to start by saying, God, who have you put in front of me today to share the gospel with? Before we cross an ocean, or before we cross the states to say, well, I cross the street. Well, I cross the hallway to share about who Jesus is and what he's done for me. And do you know what it would look like if we lived this out? I do. It's not because I have like a magic eight ball or anything. I just have the Bible. Acts 4. Two men that we see in Matthew 4, a few chapters later, Acts 4, here's what's true. They're doing ministry. They're preaching the gospel. They're seeing God do amazing things, first and foremost. Acts 4.4. 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed. The number was brought to about 5,000. People got saved. No amens for that. Wow. Okay. Here's the deal. You guys, if we start living as Christians, we're going to see people get saved. That's amazing. And here's what's also true. People won't look at us and say, wow, Veritas Church really has it figured out. Because they looked at Peter and John, and here's what was said. They looked like uneducated common men who had been with Jesus. I'm like... Give me some of that. Like, would people just look at people who come to Veritas Church and they'd be like, hey, they are just ordinary people, but they've been with Jesus. And in Acts 4, verse 20, these men are told to be quiet. Stop talking. You're creating chaos. And here's what they say. We cannot help but speak of that which we've seen and heard. That's my prayer for us. Right? Ordinary people who've been with Jesus, who can't help but speak of that which we've seen and heard, and then we trust God to do the rest, that many would believe because of the word that's been spoken, and that he would get the worship he deserves. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you alone are awesome. I feel like we skip. Past that uh, this morning, that you are awesome, that you induce wonder, God, that you spoke the galaxies into existence, and yet you're the same God who put on flesh, left your throne and moved towards us, that you've called us, that you've chosen us, and you have decided to choose people who are weak and lowly and despised so that we would boast in you. Help us to rejoice in the gospel. And yes, Jesus, help us to follow you more closely. Help us to be people that walk in step with your spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh. And as we're satisfied in you, as we see how big and beautiful you are, help us to talk about you. Open our mouths. Make our feet ready to go wherever you would call us to go. And we pray, God, that you would use ordinary common people who've been with you to lead many to repentance and faith so that you would get the worship you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.